Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So I was thinking about this old story I read in Esquire where this NBA player was talking about how he talked trash. And to make the experience even worse for his opponents, he would eat raw onions before a game. Oh. So not only was his, like, mouth smelly, but his entire body would just reek of onions. And uh, obviously people wouldn't want to get as close to him. I mean, as if the trash talking wasn't bad enough to have to deal with that smell. And actually, I I feel like it would almost be even worse if instead of talking, he just kind of went near them and just was like breathing like (laughs) like close to them. But anyway, that's so weird. It is gross and ridiculous. But, you know, I, I was reading up on ninjas and ninja diets on Atlas Obscura. And this is the total opposite of that. So ninjas would actually avoid eating any smelly foods because they were supposed to be completely undetectable even by smell. So think about things like garlic, leeks, onions. Those were all off the table. Also, since they had to be super agile, you know, ninjas had this ironclad rule that they couldn't weigh more than 130 pounds. And because they'd be lurking in shadows, you know, just waiting for the right opportunity, they'd take these homemade hunger pills with them. That's what they'd call them so that their, you know, stomachs wouldn't start growling and give them away. And one of these pills was made from yams. Um, also, a bit of cinnamon, rice, lotus pips, and and there was another snack ball made of uh, pine bark, ginseng, and white rice. And well, Yummy. I don't think anyone's going to go on the ninja diet anytime soon. Exactly, you know. Reading about this did make me wonder, like, what else don't we know about ninjas? Why did so many of them keep crickets as pets? Like, uh, why were they staring into cats' eyes? Uh, why did they keep pocket change on them? You know, and, and also, does the ninja shark live up to its reputation? So let's <laughs> dig in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hot Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, Mango, all week, I've been excited to see what Tristan would be doing. 
I thought maybe he would be hidden and we wouldn't see him the entire episode mm-hmm. pulling off the ninja thing. But instead, he's showing off his pirate costume again for some reason. <laughs> anyway, that's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I'm not really sure what's going on here because today's show is all about ninjas. Do you think he just missed the memo or what? You know, I asked him earlier and he said he's just showing his love for the team. You know, I, I guess when it comes to this eternal debate over who's cooler, pirates or ninjas, Tristan is apparently team pirate all the way. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, we'll have to see if today's show brings him around at all, because I'm just going to come out and say that I am team ninja all the way here. Yeah, me too. You know, pirates are cool, but to me, they feel like uh, loudmouths. You know, they're like brash. And, and meanwhile, yeah. like ninjas are so calm and collected and stealthy and they use like smart tricks like misdirection. You you know, it feels like the two camps couldn't be any more different. No, I agree completely. But, you know, if pirates and ninjas do have one thing in common, it's that both groups are pretty misunderstood. You know, in our pirate episode, we talked about how most of what we know about pirates really comes from popular fiction instead of things like historical accounts. And it's actually the same story when it comes to ninjas. Like, we know them mostly as these masked characters that Chuck Norris fights off in his movies or, I don't know, as these pizza-loving mutant turtles. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I hate to disappoint you, those portrayals are not actually rooted in reality. (laughs) So, for today's episode, we thought it'd be fun to peer into the shadows surrounding ninja history and and really kind of see if we can get a better idea of what these legendary warriors were really like. So we'll talk about where ninjas came from, what kinds of missions they carried out, as well as some of the coolest ninja skills and, you know, the equipment you've probably never heard about. So why don't we start with why ninjas are so mysterious in the first place and why it's likely that they always will be. One thing I noticed while researching is that even when ninjas were at their peak in Japan, and this was in the early 16th century, nobody really knew that much about them. And it makes sense because ninjas were spies for the most part. So, of course, you know, they had to keep a low profile. They didn't talk about their work, you know, especially with anyone outside their clan. But rumors still swirled about these secretive warriors. And as a result, ninjas became steeped in superstition pretty much from the start. For instance, uh, some Japanese folklore claims that ninjas descended from a demon that was half man and half crow. Hmm. And most villagers during the ninja age believed that ninjas possessed all sorts of supernatural powers, like everything from shape-shifting to invisibility to the power to walk through walls. And if you think about it, those kind of superpowers are pretty easy to arrive at when you look at some of the methods ninjas used. Like, they'd often disguise themselves on missions. They were masters of concealment. They could break into an enemy's house or infiltrate a fortress with ease. And with a little bit of imagination, you've got a ninja that can shapeshift or walk through walls. It makes sense. Yeah, and it actually sounds a lot like what happened with pirates, like the way all these embellished stories and tall tales kind of sprang up right alongside them and and then later became just the accepted truth. Yeah, it's interesting because ninjas capitalized on their own legends the same way pirates did. Like, ninjas actually encouraged all these rumors because they knew that inaccurate reports would make them seem more dangerous to enemies. And it was also a great way to muddy the waters and further conceal who they were and how they functioned. Of course, there's a downside to that, and that's that no one actually corrected the falsehoods. And as a result, even written accounts from the era tend to be exaggerated, which makes it tough to distinguish between fact and fiction. You know, we only have three or four manuals supposedly written by ninja masters, and this was shortly after their fall from power in the late 16th century. And because they were written after the fact, it's possible those are inaccurate as well. 
Yeah, that's true. But just like with pirates, there are at least a few things we know that, you know, were true about ninja history. For instance, we actually know a good bit about where ninja practices first came from. And surprisingly, much of that philosophy comes from China, not not from Japan. And in the 4th or 5th century BCE, Sun Tzu wrote his famous battle guide, The Art of War, which includes this section extolling the virtue of stealth and surprise, which are, of course, the backbone of ninja training. So just to make sure I have what you're saying is right, you know, you're saying that a lot of the ideas of what it is to be a ninja actually come from Chinese philosophy, but the Japanese were the ones who actually put them into practice. Yeah, that seems to be the case. And, you know, most historians now agree that ninja practices originated in central Japan during the early Middle Ages. And that was a period when the country was really being picked apart by warlords. Now, luckily for would-be ninjas, the warlords were mostly interested in the more developed areas of Japan, and that meant that the rural regions often went overlooked and were typically warlord-free. And so those two factors combined to create these prime conditions for the birth of ninjas. Is that another reason why ninjas are still such a mystery? Like, not only did they keep their practices a secret, but they kind of developed in isolation. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, to be specific on this, they developed in two such regions. There was Iga and Koga. Now, both of these were especially remote and almost completely undeveloped. So there were no warlords there, and that's exactly how the people liked it. So much so that the villages began to organize themselves like these self-defense communes. And because they had neither the numbers nor the weaponry to ward off invaders with any sort of real force... The residents focused instead on these survival techniques, things like stealth, disguise, evasion, misdirection, you know, all the basic ninja stuff. Basic ninja stuff. (laughs) Yeah, and so as their skills developed, these travelers started telling stories, and pretty soon these early ninjas were being hired as mercenaries all over the country. Yeah, and I I think the mercenary role is really worth lingering on for a second because one of the biggest misconceptions, at least I had about ninjas, is that they were some kind of elite fighting force. And the truth is that ninjas mostly acted as medieval secret agents. They were, like, hired by lords to spy on their enemies and report back with intel or or sometimes assassinate a target. But they occasionally acted as bodyguards. Still, they were mostly providing spy work for the battlefield. But, you know, they were never traditional soldiers or warriors. And, in fact, ninjas didn't even receive formal martial arts training. All right, so what about those classes that people take where you learn to defend yourselves, you know, supposedly like a ninja? Ninjutsu, I think it's called. Isn't that a martial art? It's not really a traditional martial art. You know, all that came well after the ninjas fell from power, and it was never part of their real training. In fact, most ninjas learned self-defense during childhood from their family members, but from there, adult training would really focus more on infiltration techniques, uh, gymnastics, as well as... These more esoteric topics, things like uh, chemistry, weather, psychology, you've got to remember ninjas were mostly hired to gather information and survive long enough to report back. And the whole point was not to be seen and not to get caught. So fighting wasn't actually a big part of the playbook. Like most of that was kind of a last resort in case things went wrong. Well, that makes sense. You know, since we're talking about the importance of not being seen, I do want to mention another common misconception that most of us have, which is what ninjas wore on their mission. So you know how ninjas are always depicted, you know, in these all black skin tight uniforms and sure. kind of the ones with hooded mask where you can really just see their eyes. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that the ninjas didn't have standard uniforms like that at all. 
So most of the time they were just in normal civilian clothing like anybody else. And that's because ninjas often had to go deep undercover for their missions. So as an example, warlords would frequently hire ninjas to infiltrate another organization. And to do so, the ninjas would disguise themselves as, you know, people like gardeners or construction workers, you know, just anybody who might blend in around a palace and not draw attention to themselves. Which, you know, makes sense. But how did those ninjas sneak back to their warlords without blowing their covers? Uh, I found this interesting because they would actually do this by adopting a different cover. And the most popular choice was to dress up like a monk. Because monks were actually one of the few groups who were allowed to pass freely between these various warring states in Japan at the time. So anytime a ninja needed to report back to a different province, they'd just slip on their monk disguise and cross over the border. That's fascinating. You know, when I was in Tibet and studying about Tibetan culture and stuff, Tibet was also one of these very secretive regions. And the only way spies would come through and sort of catalog what was there was dressed as monks. And they would use their rosaries to count steps. So they knew, like, the steps to various places, you know, and and that's how they count distances and stuff. It's pretty fascinating that the monk disguise is such a great disguise. But, you know, it is a shame to me that these ninjas didn't put on, like, their black cloaks and just sneak back in the middle of the night. You know, if Tristan had done his homework, he probably would be dressed up as a monk today instead of a pirate. <laughs> but, and I, I will say, I mean, I want the ninja uniform to be true as much as you do, but it does seem like history is not on our side with this one. Oh, but, no. <laughs> you know, that being said, ninjas did go on plenty of these one-night missions. And when they did, what they wore was not all that dissimilar from what we like to imagine. I mean, there, there are a couple of key differences First was that those real stealth ninja outfits were not skin tight. I mean, the ninjas had to perform all these acrobatics to get in and out of these buildings without being seen. So it was better to have clothing that breathed a little bit and would allow for a good degree of movement. And then second, black wouldn't have been their color of choice, not only because it would have been difficult to achieve because of the dyes that were available at the time, but black also tends to reflect moonlight, which would definitely be a no-no on these night missions. So instead, historians believe ninjas wore dark brown or navy blue clothes when they were doing these late-night scouting missions. I like that they were both fashionable and practical. Me too. You know, one thing I've been thinking about is that people usually think of ninjas and samurai as polar opposites. And to a certain extent, that makes sense. Like, uh, samurai had really bold personalities. They were pretty renowned for their toughness and their bravado. Plus, they dressed really, really colorfully. And meanwhile, ninjas were secretive and mostly out for themselves. They practiced deception and stealth and avoided combat whenever possible. You know, the demeanor and tactics of the two groups couldn't have been more far apart. But at the same time, that disparity actually turned off a lot of Japanese citizens. They they were used to the explicit bravery and the undying loyalty of the samurai. I mean, that was their measure of a warrior, not this like stealthy, underhanded stuff that ninjas were doing. So, like, did people not think much of ninjas at the time? Not at first, apparently. Like, they eventually came around. Over time, samurais and warlords both kind of realized the value of these covert operations and and that it was useful for winning battles or whatever. But, you know, it wasn't uncommon to see ninjas and samurai on the same side of the battlefield. And some people even practiced both professions. Like, you'd have a samurai by day and ninja by night, which just feels like a great business card. 
<laughs> well, and even though what they wore was drastically different, Samurai and Ninjas did use some of the same equipment, didn't they? Like, I read somewhere that they both used that same kind of sword, like the, the katana, I think, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. So the main difference was that Samurai wore their swords on the hips while Ninjas carried them on their backs, which obviously seems like the way to go for someone who's always, like, climbing on walls and, and jumping across rooftops. And, you know, the katana was a part of some ninja missions, but mostly they preferred to carry shorter and less conspicuous blades. Actually, I kind of want to stick with this subject and talk a little bit more about some of the lesser-known gear that ninja carried around with them. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the surprising truths behind the ninja legend. All right, Mango, so I know one thing we were both scared to find out this week. I mean, really scared to find out (laughs) is whether or not ninjas actually used throwing stars. I know. We talked about this as we were prepping for the episode, and uh, I feel like I've been mentally preparing all week in case you decide to ruin my life by telling me that ninjas (laughs) didn't use throwing stars. (laughs) Well, I've got good news because, yes, ninjas absolutely use throwing stars. They, <laughs> nice. You know, those pointed stars we're used to seeing were part of a broader class of weapon called shuriken. And it's a term that covers any kind of throwing weapon, including stars or flat knives, darts, wooden sticks, or actually even coins. Wait, did you say coins? Like, like people could just take coins out and throw them at their enemies? 
Well, I mean, it sounds like they did this. And, you know, this is actually where reality maybe differs a little bit from the fictional ninjas. Because real ninjas didn't really use these, like, an offensive weapon all that often. So instead, they would take these shuriken as as kind of a distraction or delaying tactic. So let's say you've got a ninja that's hiding in the shadows and a nearby guard was getting a little too close. So he might be able to throw a coin or a knife in the opposite direction and get the guard to follow that sound. So, hmm. you know, of course, if a ninja was discovered, then these could also be used more defensively. You know, for example, if a guard charged toward them, ninjas could buy some time by forcing their enemies to dodge or block a bunch of projectiles. And those few seconds could be just what the ninja needed to either mount a stronger attack or, in most cases, you know, plot an escape route. That's interesting. And I, I think I like that explanation even better than just throwing a fistful of coins at someone. But yeah. <laughs> I, I am curious, like, why would they bother with something as unwieldy as a throwing star if the intention is just distraction, right? Like, like I mean, the other stuff you mentioned makes sense, but throwing stars have a ton of sharp points. They kind of feel like a liability. Like, if I was reaching into my pocket, I'd be worried I'd be cutting my finger every time I reach for one. And that's why you're not an engine. But, I mean, <laughs> you know, I can tell you that these throwing stars were considered actually a little bit easier to throw than some of the other shuriken, like, you know, the flat throwing knives. And that's because the stars have these multiple points that spin when they're in flight. And it actually makes it a little bit easier to aim these things and throw these things. And plus, it likely didn't hurt that a bunch of spinning blades makes for a pretty menacing sight when it's coming right at you. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I know we wanted to talk about some of the weirder skills and gadgets that ninjas had at their disposal, but really quickly, I, I did want to mention a few other blades that ninjas put to good use. So first up, there's the kusaragama, which was this small sickle with a chain on the end of the handle. And this was especially helpful for ninjas who were undercover because this is actually a farming tool. So if a ninja was caught with one, he could just claim to be a gardener. And then the other blades, like I wanted to talk about, were the kunai. And these are little daggers which were borrowed from another sort of uh, harmless trade, masonry in this case. And they were shaped like trowels, only a little bit sharper. And the ninja used this for scaling walls rather than fighting. Like they would infiltrate a castle by pulling out their kunai and then climbing way up the wall by digging holes into the plaster as they went. That's pretty neat. And, you know, it, it was really surprising when we found out just like all of the unusual or unique things that they would find to be able to use as tools in their utility belt. But I know we both found a lot of stuff that ninjas relied on that that honestly feels even stranger than that. And there's one I definitely want to talk about, and it's a particularly helpful ninja skill. And it's the ability to tell time from looking into a cat's eyes. Now, something <laughs> I would never do, but I respect this skill. And this is a real thing. I'm not making this up. It's called Nekome Jutsu. And it's based on the fact that cats have these especially sensitive eyes, including these pupils that can drastically change in size throughout the day in response to changing light. And so ninjas would spend a lot of time apparently staring into cats' eyes because they were able <laughs> to determine the time of day down to the exact hour just by looking at these cats' pupils. That is so now, weird. Case, yeah, I know. It really is. It is. And, you know, for all of our more cat-inclined listeners out there that want to give this a shot and report back, you should know that a cat's pupils start out super round in the early morning. And then they begin to narrow to like more of an oval shape as the sun climbs higher in the sky. And then the pupils reach their narrowest at noon when they basically look like those 
thin, straight lines we sometimes picture as cat eyes, and they gradually start to widen as the afternoon goes on. And so if you really want to get precise about this, you can search online for Cat's Eye Sundial and become a Nakome Jutsu master yourself. That's funny. So you could actually like look at uh, a cat print advertisement and tell exactly when it was shot by yeah. looking at the. <laughs> That's, That's true. Crazy. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like telling the time by your cat's eyes is somehow both the dorkiest and kind of the most impressive thing I've heard about ninjas today. I, I think so. <laughs> so this next skill doesn't involve seeing like a cat. It, it is more about moving like one. It's called taihen jutsu, and it's basically the art of quieting your movements because obviously ninjas had to sneak around a lot, and that's kind of a big part of the job. So they grew adept at all kinds of noise-canceling practices like absorbing their falls or rebounding off something quietly or just softening their footsteps by walking on the outsoles of their feet and keeping their knees bent as they did. You know, ninjas had become such masters of quiet movement that it really freaked out warlords. And warlords started building houses with these floors that were prone to squeaking just so a ninja couldn't sneak up on them. And that wasn't all either. Like some warlords hired these bodyguards to watch them sleep every night and even demanded that all members of the household wear baggy clothes so that they would drag along the floor and just make noise wherever they went. Yeah, you know, these guys sound pretty paranoid for a bunch of warlords. It's it's a little strange, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I actually came across another technique that ninjas use to mask their movements, and and this one's pretty ingenious, if you ask me. So, apparently, when ninjas needed to travel silently through a forest or make their way through an enemy camp, they would actually bring along with them a small box or jar of live crickets. (laughs) And so, the noise from the chirping crickets would help cover the sound of the ninja's footsteps and prevent their location from being given away by any stray sounds like snapping twigs or crunchy snow. But ninjas couldn't afford the deal with uncooperative crickets, so they actually used these special chemical mixtures that would either entice the crickets to chirp or compel them to stay silent depending on what the situation called for. That's pretty amazing. You know, I I was going to say, insects and birds usually go quiet when they sense a predator is near. So I'd imagine crickets wouldn't always feel like chirping when they're strapped to a ninja. So it is interesting that they've got a way to make them chirp. Yeah, it's true. And it's actually another good reason why ninjas carry these crickets. Because if you think about it, if all the animals in an area suddenly went quiet, that might tip off the guards that there would be a ninja nearby. And so... If the ninja has a bunch of these drug-induced chirping crickets at his side, the noise could actually keep the other animals from blowing his cover. (laughs) Drugged up crickets is crazy. Uh, It is amazing how resourceful these ninjas were, like that they just saw these crickets and realized they could make use of them. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And, you know, speaking of being resourceful, you know how ninjas use different powders to to blind their opponents? I feel like mm-hmm. you've seen a little bit of this in things like movies. But I read their containers of choice for this were hollowed out eggshells, which was something I had not seen before. So apparently they would poke a needle in a chicken egg and then drain out the contents of that egg through the hole. And then they would refill it with some sort of blinding agent. And 
This could be anything from sand or salt to iron filings or pepper powder. I mean, pretty much anything guaranteed to bring some tears and irritate the respiratory system. So in a fight, ninjas would smash the trick eggs into their opponent's eyes, incapacitating them and giving the ninja a chance to plan his next move. That is so weird. So my cousins and I used to fill eggs with sand like that as a kid and then just drop them off the first story of my grandmom's house as kind of spy bombs. And I had no idea that it was actually a ninja technique we were using. Also, I take that back, what I said earlier. Maybe you were actually a ninja. You know what you're doing. You know, this sounds so much weirder, but uh, can you imagine how thrown off you'd be if, like, you were in the middle of a fight and a ninja just pulled out a chicken egg and then tried to jam it in your face? Like, I'd exactly. be so confused. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't come across any examples of uh, ninja food fights, unfortunately, but I, I, I did find a few cases where they used food as a way to pass along secret information. So one example of this is something called Goshiki Mai, and it roughly translates to five-colored rice. The ninjas would take a bunch of grains of rice and they'd paint them five different colors, like red, blue, yellow, black, and purple. And then whenever a ninja had something to report while undercover, he could just like go to the side of the road or some out-of-the-way place and scatter a bunch of grains for other ninjas from the same clan to find. So I guess this was based on some sort of code system that they all knew, or, or what was this? Definitely. So the number of grains they dropped and the different color combinations all had their own specific meanings. And none of it would mean much to an enemy or even a random passerby. But a ninja with the know-how would be able to, you know, read over a hundred different codes using this method. Also, just as a side note, it was safe for birds. Uh, Supposedly, the paint would tip them off that the rice wasn't grain or seeds and they'd steer clear of it on their own. But what's really wild is that Goshikimai wasn't even the only kind of food code that ninjas used. According to a text from this 18th century Japanese writer, ninjas also sent pieces of fish to communicate an important date, like... If an undercover ninja hit upon, like, the perfect day for reinforcements to storm a castle, for example, he could send his clan some fish, and the size of the fish and the number of pieces indicated the month and the day he had in mind. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's stunning. You know, the way the fish was prepared also mattered. So if it was dried fish, that meant you were planning to commit arson. Salted fish meant that you had some sort of treachery in the works. But... It wasn't just rice and fish. Uh, According to Atlas Obscura, ninjas also used uh, sweet cakes to call for reinforcements and bread rolls to call for forces to attack the enemy from the rear. They also had a rice cake code, which meant, I guess, a request for provisions. I kind of want to do something like this, but like just indicating what time a meeting will start, like rather than sending around... You know, meeting invitation electronically. (laughs) We're going to send each other like some fish or maybe some of those like granola bars. And depending on, you know, whether they're unwrapped, I don't know. I need to think of the code. Yes. (laughs) I'll keep you guys posted. And that's going to be how we indicate what time meetings start. But anyway, one of the things I'm curious about is how ninjas went mainstream and and really take a look at how their legacy is holding up today. But before we get to that, let's take one more quick break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Okay, Will, so today we know that ninjas have become pretty iconic figures of pop culture. They show up in video games, comics, cartoons. There's pretty much an entire genre of action films devoted to them. But, of course, it wasn't always like this. And actually, it wasn't until the 1960s that ninjas really made their splash in the Western world, roughly 300 years after the heyday of real-life ninjas. So what happened in the 60s? Well, as weird as it sounds, James Bond happened. So (laughs) more specifically, the movie uh, You Only Live Twice happened. And when the movie version debuted in 1967, it featured Bond on a mission in Japan where he was supposed to be trained as a ninja by this Japanese secret agent named Tiger Tanaka. And for many people in the West, this was the first exposure to ninja culture or at least what passed for it in the movies. And I'm guessing probably not the most accurate portrayal though, right? No, in fact, just listen to this quote from the British travel writer and historian named John Mann. This is what he wrote. Quote, The Bond movie popularized the idea of ninja among people who are not interested in martial arts. It's quite strange, really. The idea of the ninja spread, but in the film, they're not represented as ninja at all, more as commandos. Nevertheless, that's what made the term popular in the West. I blame James Bond. You know, actually, I just pulled up the uh, IMDb page for You Only Live Twice, And this is super interesting, but it actually looks like we can also blame Roald Dahl because he apparently wrote the screenplay for this movie. That is really weird. I I feel like I read Roald Dahl's entire catalog, and I had no idea that he worked on a James Bond movie. Yeah, this this is what it says. And, And he strayed pretty far from the source material with the whole ninja plot, but that's not even the strangest thing on IMDb. Apparently, while scouting locations in Japan, the movie's entire chief production team actually narrowly escaped death, and this was all thanks to a bunch of ninjas. So apparently the team was invited to this last-minute ninja demonstration, and they missed their flight as a result, but the plane that they would have been on, it actually wound up crashing and killing everybody on board. That is 
really horrible. It also feels like I got misled there. I thought the ninjas like swooped in to save the day and said they just had the performance that everyone yep, attended. That's what they did. Yeah, they just had to put on a show. <laughs> but you know, in terms of accuracy, the portrayals only got less connected to reality as ninjas became more and more popular. So by the time the 1980s rolled around, ninjas really had cemented themselves as these characters in children's programming. You know, right up there with like cowboys and spacemen and of course pirates. So ninja characters started popping up in G.I. Joe, like in their toy line. I, I actually vividly remember this. Mm-hmm. And Batman's origin even got a rewrite to include a stint where he underwent ninja training before he, you know, pulled it all together. And sure. there was actually this full-blown ninja craze all through the 80s and well into the 90s, right in the prime of our childhood. And it's only in the last decade or so that that ninja fever has cooled a bit and now they mostly show up in places like anime series and internet culture, and they're really usually more portrayed in a playful light, I guess. But it feels like they don't get as much respect as you would think they would, given how impressive their history is. And I guess that's probably the cost of ninjas having kept so much of their practice a secret. Yeah, I mean, that sounds right to me. But the good news is that the ninjas of the past probably wouldn't be too bothered by that. I mean, I, I'm not saying they'd appreciate the implication that a bunch of teenage mutant turtles could do their job, but <laughs> ninjas did go along with plenty of far-fetched legends in their day, and they'd probably consider it a far worse tragedy if we'd figured out everything about them and sort of ruined their mystery. That's a good point. I mean, I'm curious, though, are there any real ninjas left in the world? Like, I know there's the whole ninjutsu martial arts community, but... It sounds like that's kind of its own thing, doesn't really have much basis in tradition, but are there you know, any of the old clans still around? Yes and no. So th- there are actually two men who could reasonably claim the title of Japan's last ninja because they're both leaders of surviving ninja clans, uh, the Bon clan and the Togakure clan. The head of the Bon clan is this guy named uh, Jinichi Kawakami, and he's pushing 70 but still teaches ninjutsu classes and also runs a ninja museum. And the other ninja master is uh, Masaki Hasumi, and he, he's about a decade older than uh, the other guy, and, and he was actually the martial arts advisor on that Bond film. Today, he's semi-retired, but he still teaches ninja history part-time at a Japanese university. All right, so these guys are like the real deal? Like, they actually know the techniques handed down from that golden age of ninjas way back in the 16th century? I mean, that's definitely the claim, but both men come from families with strong ninja heritage. They have a lot of history, and once they became masters, they were supposedly granted access to these secret scrolls and tools of their respective clans dating back as far as 500 years. Of course, no one else has seen or likely will see those artifacts, so it it is hard to verify their authenticity or even their contents. I mean, it feels like someone will eventually see this stuff, right? Like, I assume these guys have been busy training successors, so the clans, you know, they won't die out completely once they're gone. At least you'd hope not. That's what I I thought as well. But it turns out that both men are in agreement that uh, neither will appoint anyone to take over for them as ninja grandmasters. This is what Mr. Kawakami explained in an interview a few years back. Quote, In the age of civil wars, ninjas' abilities to spy and kill or mix medicine may have been useful. But we now have guns, the internet, and much better medicines. So the art of ninjutsu has no place in the modern age. We can't try out murder or poisons. (laughs) Even if we can follow the instructions to make a poison, we can't try it out. 
You know, I, I was really feeling for the guy right up until the part where he lamented not being able to try out murder. I think that's I think that's where I lost it. It is frustrating for our true ninjas. But, uh, you know, this is the quote from Mr. Hatsumi. Uh, when he was asked about his decision to not select an heir, this is what he told reporters. Quote, my students will continue to practice some of the techniques that were used by ninjas, but a person must be destined to succeed the clan. And there is no such person. Well, that is a definitive answer, if nothing else, I guess. But still, still kind of a sad one, I think. Yeah. And yeah, I think you're ultimately right that ninjas would appreciate that their mystique is still intact after all these years. But I just hope that along with all the cartoon ninjas and the cheesy Chuck Norris films, that we still find ways to remember the real thing. I mean, there was a time when ninjas were a very bizarre but very real force in the world, and it'd be a shame to forget that completely. Well, I think between the two of us, we probably got some unforgettable ninja facts for the fact off. So let's just dive in. In 2010, Bloomberg News reported that security agents at a Japanese airport made Steve Jobs throw away his ninja stars before he boarded his private plane. <laughs> I guess he'd picked up these objects and, and wanted to bring them home with them. They're really beautiful things. And, of course, he was doubly irritated when he had to leave them because the logic was that he might use the throwing stars to hijack his own plane. <laughs> And so Apple later downplayed and even refuted the incident, but Bloomberg stuck with their story. I like this idea of like Steve Jobs being a ninja fanboy. Me it, too. It is pretty yeah. amazing. You know, uh, apparently ninjas aren't just land-based creatures. There's also a ninja of the sea, the ninja lantern shark. And apparently most lantern sharks who dwell deep in the sea glow from their bellies. But this newly discovered ninja shark uh, doesn't. They're totally black. And they do have this uh, faint blue glow that emerges from their heads. But you don't have to be too scared of them. Uh, Mental Floss says they're only really the size of a ferret. But the best part of the ninja shark to me is how it got its name. So the lead scientist on the study, Vicky Vasquez, let her four kids who were age 8 to 14 decide on the name. And what they lobbied for was the super ninja. But (laughs) she dialed it back to just plain ninja. (laughs) <laughs> also, uh, <laughs> I know it's so cute, but uh, the the shark's Latin name is E. Benchley, which is a tribute to Peter Benchley, the author of Jaws. That's pretty cool. And even if they are the size of ferrets, I'm pretty sure I'd still be scared if I saw something that was called a ninja shark. I mean, um, I'm scared of ferrets. So. <laughs> oh, right. That's, that's a good point, too. I didn't think about that. All right, well, if you're headed to Tokyo this year, you can visit the newly opened Ninja Museum, which is the brainchild of the Japan Ninja Council. So this is this group of scholars and townships that have banded together to increase enthusiasm for ninjas around the world. But here's what's fascinating to me. It's that the Ninja Council is very focused on shedding light on how well-rounded these ninjas were. So according to Smithsonian, the Ninja Council notes that, quote, Ninjas often did their work not by executing insane flips and perching on rooftops, but by making friends and working their social connections. The art of the ninja includes things like social skills, conversation techniques, (laughs) mnemonics, food, astronomy, and weather. So, I mean, honestly, it kind of feels like they're trying to make ninjas so much less interesting. (laughs) 
it also feels like they're opening up the definition of ninja to anyone. Like, like yeah. do you like food? You can be a ninja. Do you yeah, like exactly. talking about the weather? You can be a ninja. You're a ninja. <laughs> so speaking of ninja, did you know that 4,000 women have been actively training to become ninja in Iran for over 20 years now? Oh, wow. There's this club that has over 24,000 members, supposedly, and the women practice everything from backflips to weapons training to trying to blend into the landscape. Of course, as the group's leader states, vetting the women who are interested in the program is a top priority. This is what he says, quote, I must be very sure that my students will not use the techniques of ninjutsu to hurt anyone or sneak into someone else's house. All right. Well, here's one that I honestly think is going to be hard to top. I've been saving this one for very last. So Uh according to the site Consequence of Sound, in 1991, Axl Rose was late to a Guns N' Roses concert in Tampa because he was watching the movie Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, (laughs) Secret of the Ooze. So he refused to go on stage until the movie was finished. And when the management at the venue kept pleading why he wouldn't go on, here's what his manager said. Axel's attention is 100% on the movie right now, and he should not be bothered. (laughs) That is incredible. You know, I had been trying to find a good Mutant Ninja Turtle fact, but I I, I didn't. But the fact that you brought Axel Rose into the mix, too, I I feel like you earned the trophy. (laughs) That's it for today's Part-Time Genius. If you got a great ninja fact we missed, be sure to share it to our Facebook or Twitter. And from Gabe, Tristan, Will, and me, thank you so much for listening. Hey, uh, Mango, look, Tristan's gone. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. (laughs) Gary Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Ready to celebrate International Women's Day? 
M&M's and iHeart present Women Take the Mic, sharing empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So savor the deliciousness of Peanut Butter M&M's and spread some positivity. From breaking glass ceilings to dominating in sports and entertainment, women truly are unstoppable.